exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we're going to be picking up in verse 19. And while you're turning to John chapter 10, let me remind you that last week in chapter 10, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the leaders and the shepherds of Israel, and Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And in verse 18, he says, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. And that's where we left off. Now, if someone told me they had the power over their own death, I'd think they'd, they were suicidal. But if they told me they had the, the power to raise their life back up, I think they were insane. And so the Pharisees think that as well. And that's where we pick up in the story today. So we'll pray. And then we'll learn more about this man who claimed to have the power to raise himself from the dead. Let's pray. God of all wisdom, we ask that you would remove all pride from our hearts. Don't let us be like the Pharisees who claiming to have sight were blind, who saw the miracles of Jesus clearly before them, but they denied their power. Lord, we have your word before us today. Let us see your son. He has the power to heal the blind. He has the power to hear all, heal our spiritual blindness. And so I ask that, that I would get out of the way, that our pride would get out of the way, and that your son would be the center of this sermon. And may the sermon that is heard this morning be far better than the one that is preached. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered if your faith might fail? If you have, you're not alone. Robert Harkness was a gifted piano player from Australia who became a Christian at a revival meeting with the famous preacher R.A. Torrey. After he was converted, he went on to travel with R.A. Torrey and played at his revivals. And one night while they were in Canada, Robert Harkness met a young man who was newly converted. And this young man confided in Harkness and told him that he was terrified that he wouldn't be able to hold out. He was worried he would not be able to finish the race. He was worried he would walk away from the faith just like so many others that he knew. And Robert Harkness naturally longed to comfort the young man, but at the time he did not have the answer. He didn't have the words to comfort him. I've been a Christian for 15 years. And during my short time as a Christian, I've seen other believers who had believed for much longer than I have now, who have fallen away. I've seen men who were much more passionate, much more zealous, who seemed much more on fire for the Lord, walk away from the faith. And just recently, a pastor I knew back in Kansas City who seemed to be a faithful pastor for over a decade at a church and was definitely a much better preacher than I was, someone who I respected, uh, left his wife, his kids, his church for another woman. And, and every time that, that this happens, because it's happened since the beginning, it's happened since the beginning of the church, I ask the question, if, if they didn't make it, how am I supposed to make it? Someone that strong didn't make it, how am I going to make it? And just like in John 6, when thousands of Jesus' followers were leaving him, he turns to his 12 and he asks, will you go away also? And what's your answer to that question? How are you going to make it to the end? Because let me tell you, friends, if you have to make it to the end in your own power, 
I can promise you, you're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And then what good is it if your name was written in the Lamb's book of life if in the end you die lost? What good is it if you have been born again if in the end you die lost? What good is it if Christ has suffered and died and risen in your place if at the end you and I die lost? Finishing the race is everything. So is there any hope for us? Well, I'm here to tell you that there is hope and there is good news that salvation does not depend on you holding on to Christ, but Christ holding on to you. And if you listen to this text, this glorious, precious truth in John 10, it it can be like a pillow you rest your head on at night. But if you ignore the sweet promises of John 10, then all that's left for you is fear and anxiety and, and unsurety. See, my prayer this morning is that you would find security in Christ's grace and his power so that you can persevere to the end. My prayer this morning is that you would find security in Christ's grace and his power so that you can persevere to the end. Because in John 10, we're going to find three promises that will give you peace. The first promise that will give you peace is this. Christ's sheep are chosen by his grace. We're going to find that in verse 19 through verse 27. Second, Christ's sheep are eternally secure by his power. We're going to find that in verses 28 through 30. And finally, we'll find that Christ's sheep respond to his voice. We'll find that in verses 31 through 42. Those are the three promises. Christ's sheep are chosen by his grace. They're eternally secure by his power, and they respond to his voice. But let's start with the first promise that gives peace. Look with me to verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus' enemies are like a broken record. See, the Pharisees, they never denied that Jesus performed miracles. They would have always argued, however, that he performed his miracles by the power of the devil. And so once again, they claim that Jesus has a demon. But not every Pharisee comes to this conclusion. There are some who disagree. And the reason is, is remember that of all the prophets of the Old Testament, of all the miracles of the Old Testament, not a single blind man was ever healed. No one had ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. But in John 9, Jesus does just that. Why is Jesus alone the only one who can heal the blind? Because according to Isaiah 29, when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will see. Healing the blind was a miracle reserved for only the Messiah. No other prophet did it before Jesus. And it seems like some of these religious rulers are putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But they're the minority And the majority of them, they're ready to kill. But then John pauses the story and he gives us some context in verses 22 through 23. He writes, At the time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The feast of dedication is a feast that you probably know today as Hanukkah. 
And I think John tells us this for two reasons. First, we're only three months away from the cross. Even though we're only halfway through this gospel, we're getting even closer to the end of Jesus' life. And John wants us to be aware of the timeline. But second, Hanukkah was a time to remember when the Syrian army had taken over Israel and polluted the temple with idols, even sacrificing a pig in the temple of the Lord, which was absolutely forbidden according to the Torah. And three years after that, the Jews rose up and they fought against the Assyrians and they kicked them out. They cleansed the temple. It was not just a religious holiday. It was also a patriotic holiday. So think of 4th of July combined with Christmas. I mean, really. But now the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans and they were waiting for a Messiah who might free them from the Roman oppression, which is why the Jews asked what they asked next. Look with me to verses 24 to 25. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. The Jews came to Jesus with a simple question, are you the Messiah? But we know from verses 19 through 21 that their question is not sincere. And Jesus knows this too. He knows their hearts. And so he does not give them a direct answer. He says, I've told you and you do not believe. How did Jesus tell them? Well, most recently, he said, I am the good shepherd. Our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel told us that God was angry with the wicked shepherds, the wicked rulers of Israel, and he was going to replace them with his servant David to be Israel's shepherd and prince. And when Jesus, a descendant of David, from the house of David, claimed to be the good shepherd, it should have been obvious to these teachers of the law who Jesus was. And on top of that, he keeps performing signs and wonders. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, every time that Jesus did some supernatural deed, it was God the Father declaring to the world, this is my son. When Jesus performed a sign, the miracles were so instantaneous, so complete, so marvelous that no one doubted the authenticity of his miracles. It wasn't like someone had a sore arm and then Jesus touched it and he said, yeah, it feels better. No, the one, people who are paralyzed for decades walk. People who are blind from birth see. People who are on their deathbed recover as if it was nothing. Every sign that Jesus performed in this book is the father declaring to the world, this is my son. Believe his message. But that may make you wonder, and I think it's natural to wonder, if Jesus' miracles were so undeniable, why didn't everyone believe them? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 26. Listen to what he said. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus says something in verse 26, 26 that still surprises me when I read it. He does not say, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe me. That would make sense to me. That's what I would have said. How do you become a sheep? You believe. But that's not what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, you do not believe precisely because you're not among my sheep. And that raises the question, who are the sheep and how do you become a sheep? 
Well, verse 27 says, Jesus' sheep, they hear his voice, he knows him, and they follow him. The sheep are those who follow, simple enough. But it's not just those who are currently following. Look back at verse 16. Look back at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So what can we conclude? Christ's sheep are not just those who are currently following Jesus, but it includes all those who also will follow Jesus. Remember John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. Jesus came to this earth with a mission from the Father, and that mission was to save all the Father gave him. In other words, to save his sheep. So what makes you a sheep? Verse 26 tells us not everyone is a sheep. So what's the difference between those who are his sheep and aren't his sheep? Well, I think there's a very important clue in verse 27. Verse 27 tells us that Jesus knows his sheep. Well, doesn't Jesus know everyone? Of course he does. Absolutely, Jesus knows everyone. He's infinite knowledge. He's God. He has that knowledge. But he knows his sheep in a special way. You see, God knows and loves everyone, but God has a special saving love for his people. For instance, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. This is all over the Old Testament. This equating of knowledge and love. Uh, uh, let, me, let me say, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God says to Israel, you only I, know, I have known of all the families of the earth. Was God unaware of Egypt? Was he unaware of Babylon? Absolutely not. Of course, he knows about them, but he doesn't know them like he knows Israel. Psalm chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Does God care about the wicked? Does he know about the wicked? Of course he does, but he knows the way of the righteous in a loving, saving way. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is a big one. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's the knowledge of God, sometimes called the foreknowledge of God, his foreloving. God knows and he loves all people, but he knows and loves his sheep in a special and saving way. So for instance, unashamedly, I love all women. However, I love my bride in a way that I love all women very differently. Amen? In the same way, Ephesians 5 calls Christians, the church, the bride of Christ, because while God loves every human being on earth, he has a special saving love for his bride. Jesus knows his sheep. He loves them. He calls them by name and he dies for them. How long has Jesus known the sheep? How long has he loved his sheep? You go to other places in the Bible, one of the clearest passages, Ephesians chapter 1. Verses four through five, that whole chapter would just blow your mind with how amazing the love and knowledge of God is. It says, uh, let me say it like this. If you are a Christian, if you are Christ's sheep, the reason you and I are followers of Jesus is because God the Father, this is Ephesians 1, verses four through five, he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he decided in advance to adopt us as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To be chosen by God is an act of God's love. If you're his sheep, when you heard Christ's voice, you listened, you followed, and you believe. Why did you believe when others did not? Is it because you were more godly than other people? Is it because you were more spiritual than others? Is it because you were smarter than other people? I'd say, no, absolutely none of those things. If you're a sheep, it's because you were known by Jesus and you were his sheep and you were chosen purely as an act of God's grace. But sadly, in this passage, the truth that's revealed is not everyone is Christ's sheep. Verse 26, the crowd does not believe precisely because they are not his sheep. And of course, that I get it. Some may say, how is it fair that God chooses some to be his sheep and not all people? How is that fair? Well, I'd ask you to think about it this way. If you have 10 prisoners who all deserve the death penalty, but the king decides to show mercy and he pardons five, he is not unjust because he decided to show mercy to some and not others. All were deserving death. The five who did not receive pardons got the justice they were owed. And the five who were pardoned simply received undeserved grace. But no one gets injustice or injustice. The question is not, why does God choose some? The question is, why did God choose any? Our sin has made us offensive to God so that we all, all we deserve from God is his justice. He made you. And you have freely chosen with your own free will the sin that is before you. In our sin, we don't want to be his sheep. We don't desire to be his sheep. We don't want to follow his voice. We run in the opposite direction. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. How well have you listened to the voice of God in his commandments? The first commandment is to worship God alone. But how often have we worshiped and loved the things of this world more than we've loved God? The third commandment is to not take his name in vain. How often have we used God's name or Jesus' name like, like a filthy cuss word? The fourth commandment is to honor the Sabbath as holy. But how often have we neglected to come to church and to worship him as he deserves? Think about all the ways that you have gone astray. And you chose that freely and you delighted in that. Think about all the times you've done what you have wanted to do rather than what God's word says. God would have been perfectly just, right, holy, and loving to condemn the whole human race for their sins. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation is not you getting your act together and becoming presentable before God. No, salvation is a free gift of God's sovereign grace. I've said this before, I'll say it again. God does not love some future version of you, church. He loves you now. He's loved you before you were even formed in the womb. He loved you in your sin. He knows the sin you're going to commit tomorrow. And yet his love is still on you in Christ. That's the grace of Christ totally undeserved, totally free. And the only reason anyone ever comes to Jesus is because the Father has graciously, he's poured out his mercy on undeserving sinners like you and me. 
No one comes to Jesus because they're more righteous than anyone else. No one comes to Jesus because they're more intelligent. It's all because of grace. Christ's sheep are chosen by his grace. But not only are Christ's sheep chosen by his grace, Christ's sheep are also eternally secured by his power. Look with me to verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear how sweet the promise of Jesus is in this verse? What kind of life does Jesus give his sheep? Eternal life, everlasting life. And let me ask you, when does eternal life end? Never, which is why Jesus says they will never perish. See, even though you and I are undeserving sinners, the good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep. He died on that cross as a substitute for his sheep. And then he rose from the grave, defeating death. So now all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will receive everlasting life. And the better news is this. You rest in the sovereign, almighty hand of Jesus and no one will snatch you out of his hand. You see, not only are Christ's sheep chosen by his grace, called by his grace, declared righteous by his grace, but they're kept by his grace. But how on earth, you may ask, you may ask, how on earth can Jesus, the son of a carpenter, make this kind of statement? Well, look at the next verse, verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. How can Jesus be so sure that his sheep will never perish? Because they not only rest in his hands, but they rest in the hands of his all-powerful heavenly father who has no equal. And because he has no equal, you can be sure that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. This verse does raise some questions. If the father gives the sheep to his son, whose hands are they in? Are they in the son's hand or the father's hand? And I think that's why Jesus says what he says next, verse 30. I am the father are one. How can Jesus promise that his sheep never perish? Because even though Jesus and the Father are two distinct persons of the Trinity, they are one being, one essence, one God. Just in case you thought the sheep, they're going to make it because of the power of the Father and not by the power of Jesus. Jesus tells us, I and the Father are one. He's one with the Father and because his sheep are eternally secure by his power, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. If you've been in a Baptist church very long, you've probably heard this teaching called eternal security. It's the teaching that all who are truly saved are secure in their salvation for eternity and they can never lose it. Sometimes this teaching is called perseverance of the saints, which is if you look at the title of the sermon, I thought it was a pretty good pun, perseverance of the sheep. You can laugh. Sometimes this is called perseverance of the saints because once again, all true saints will persevere. But what happens if someone believes at one time and then walks away from the faith? Are they still going to heaven? Do they still have eternal life? Did someone pluck them from Jesus in the Father's hand? Well, sadly, in 1 John 2.19, the same author of our gospel here, John writes, and he's talking about people who left the faith. And he writes, they went out from us but they were not of us. 
for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What does that mean? If we have eternal life, we can't lose it. And if we lose it, we never had it to begin with. All true saints will persevere in the faith because no one can pluck them out of his hand. I've heard some people say, yeah, but you can jump out. You can jump out of his hand. Can you? I don't think so. I don't think you can. Let me, for two reasons. First, listening into 1 John. If they, had been in, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Listen again to John 10, 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Are you greater than God? No. Then you're not able to even snatch yourself out of his hand. And let me tell you why that's good news. Because if you were able to jump out of God's hands, you would. I would. Without the power of God holding me, I would fall. I'd walk away from Jesus, no question about it. I, I feel that line and be down by vision. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. But praise be to God that Christ's sheep are eternally secure by his power. Amen, church? Amen. But we have one final promise for Christ's sheep. Christ's sheep will listen to his voice. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones. <coughs> the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Uh oh. The Jews understand Jesus' words perfectly. And because they are not his sheep, they don't worship him for his words as they should. They're ready to kill him. And this is a problem because even though Jesus came so that he would die, he is not supposed to die by stoning. He's supposed to die on a cross. He's not supposed to die right now. He's still got three months. This is a crisis. It's not the right time for him to die. So Jesus needs to defuse the situation and escape. And that's why he says what he says in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works for my father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus points to his works his signs, his miracles, because they prove his claim. Was it the healing of the blind man or the paralyzed man that you stoned me? And, and his question works for a second. They don't hurl a single stone, not yet. But remember, this crowd was divided in the beginning because how can a demon heal a man born blind? This is a question that gets them to hesitate, but it's not going to hold them off forever. They understand that Jesus is claiming to be God and they're ready to kill him. So Jesus once again asked another question to diffuse the situation. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, we'll stop right there. Because listen, if you are thrown off by what Jesus is saying, you're not alone. And I think that's the point. Jesus needs to defuse the situation and make his escape. So he quotes Psalm 82 so that his accusers have to stop for a second and think about what he's saying. But why does he choose this passage? Why does he quote this verse? Well, he only quotes part of Psalm 82 verse 6, but I want you to listen to the whole verse 6 and verse 7. It'll make a lot more sense. Listen carefully. 
I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Is Psalm 82 arguing that there is more than one God? Absolutely not. Verse 7 says that these gods are going to die like men. It says they will fall like any prince. We don't have time, but if you read the whole psalm, these gods are actually earthly, earthly kings and rulers. In ancient times, kings were seen as divine. But in Psalm 82, these divine kings are doomed to die like men because they were corrupt rulers. God is going to judge them and expose how powerless they actually are. And then we go back to John chapter 10. Who's Jesus talking to? The corrupt rulers of Israel, the Pharisees. So by quoting this verse... He's actually condemning the men before him, getting them to stop and think, but also speaking a word of condemnation because they were corrupt shepherds. He's not in any way saying that there are many gods. He's diffusing the situation so that he can escape. That's why Jesus does not explain himself at all. He doesn't add any interpretation on top of Psalm 82 because he's wisely using it to escape being stoned so that he can die at the right time. And uh, he quotes 82 and he says, remember when the psalmist refers to the earthly rulers as God and no one accused the psalmist of blasphemy? And, and don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not taking back what he said in verse 30 because look at what he says in verse 36. Do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He doesn't take back what he says. If anything, he doubles down. But he does complicate it. He does speak in an intentionally confusing way so that his accusers have to stop for a minute and think about what Jesus has just said. He's saying, if kings have been called gods, then who are you to condemn me the one who God has consecrated and sent for saying, I'm the son of God. To be consecrated means to be set apart. And Jesus was set apart for his mission before the foundations of the world. He is the true savior, the only Messiah, the only one who could work the works of the father. And for that reason, Jesus can say, the father is in me and I am in the father. And after all of that, what happens? Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It works and he makes his escape because no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own free will and he has the power to raise it up. Where did he escape to? Look with me to verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that Jesus said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The last time that we were at the Jordan River in this book was John chapter 1. When John the, baptized was still, John the Baptist was still baptizing. And I think John the gospel writer points this out because the first half of this gospel is coming to a close. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Chapter 11, there's a miracle that is worked in private. Chapters 12 through 16 are the Last Supper, and everything after that is the cross and the resurrection. But something amazing happens in this place across the Jordan. After working miracle after miracle in Jerusalem, 
It's the followers of John, not the followers of the Pharisees, who never saw either John nor Jesus work a single miracle. And they believe. It's not the city people who are celebrating Hanukkah who are so holy and righteous that they have traveled to Jerusalem. They're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. It's not them who believe. It's the country, uh, country people. It's the hillbillies. It's the wilderness people who trust in the Savior, who believe. Listen, you can have all the evidence in the world. And if you're not uh, uh, convinced you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you will never come to the Savior. Uh, Ryan, one of our interns, and I have been going door to door around the neighborhood, and we just asked them, you know, is there any way we can pray for you? We don't want to freak them out, but we've been trying to talk to people and get into spiritual conversations. And uh, recently, we met a, just a really nice guy who actually asked us for prayer for something he was going to. And as we were talking, I asked him, are you religious at all? And he said, well, I don't want to offend you, pastor, but I don't believe in God. It's amazing. He asked for prayer, but doesn't believe in God. But I said, that doesn't offend me at all. And so, so we, don't, we start talking and I asked him questions and, and we just tried to listen to what he had to say and answer his questions as best we could. And I'll tell you, I've never met someone who could be so nice and polite while he's calling your religion a fairy tale. That's not a joke. I'm not exaggerating. Genuinely nice guy. And I was loving it. I was like, this is great. We're talking to this atheist neighbor. It's, it's awesome. And at a certain point, I think it was about an hour into the conversation, I, I, I talked to him and I said, you know, we've been talking for a while, but let me ask you something. If I could convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity was true, would you get on your knees and worship Jesus? You know what he said? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I'm a pretty proud man. <laughs> and that was extremely honest and I respect that honesty, but it does go to show that often it's not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of will. The Pharisees were firsthand witnesses of Jesus' miracles, yet they denied him. And these wilderness people had just heard John's testimony and they believed. How is that possible? Because these wilderness people were Christ's sheep and the Pharisees were not. And Christ's sheep listened to his voice. My prayer this morning was that you would find security in Christ's grace and his power so that you could persevere to the end. Because in John 10, we found three promises that will give you peace. Christ's sheep are chosen by his grace. They're eternally secure by his power and they respond to his voice. So let me ask you again, have you ever worried that your faith might fail? Have you ever worried like the young man Robert Harkness met that you wouldn't be able to hold out to the end, that you wouldn't be able to finish the race? What have you been trusting in to save you? What are you trusting in now to help you make it to the end? If your salvation is rooted in your ability to hold on, in your ability to keep believing, you are not going to make it. I am not going to make it. But if salvation is based on Christ holding on to you, there's no chance you're not going to make it. And no one can pluck you out of his hand. Let me see. I think I have, I'm going to say, two no, I'm going to say three pastoral charges. I had four, but I'm going to cut one for time. <laughs> so number one, first pastoral charge, trust in God's grace alone. Trust in God's grace alone. If you're not a believer, know that you can do nothing to save yourself. That's why Jesus had to come and accomplish it for you. He lived the perfect life that you have failed to live. He died the death you deserved for breaking his commandments. But then he rose from the grave so that he could give eternal life to all who turn from their sin and trust in him. Trust in his sacrifice and receive eternal life. Second pastoral charge, 
Share the good news of God's grace. Share the good news of God's grace. Listen, this doctrine of Christ's sheep is so sweet to me whenever I do evangelism because this is the implications of it. There are millions, if not billions, of Christ's sheep alive in this world right now who are currently not following, not believing in Jesus. But they are Christ's sheep. And when Jesus calls with his voice, they will follow. And listen to me, church. Do you realize this, what this means for the Adirondacks in our community? That, that there are people in Brant Lake who are not Christians right now, but they are Christ's sheep. And when you go to them and you share the good news of Jesus with, and you tell them about the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, but when they hear the good news and when Jesus calls with his voice, his sheep will hear his voice and they will follow their shepherd. So share the good news of God's grace and expect God to work because he's in control and he will not fail to save a single one of his sheep. Amen. Amen. I know a lot of people can feel hopeless in this area. I get it. But we have a God who calls his sheep and his sheep listen to his voice. Final pastoral charge. Rest in the fact that you are secure in Christ's hand. Rest in the fact that you are secure in Christ's hand. For the believers in this room, let me share with you that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. If God has given you true life, he will continue to supply you with life from now into eternity. Knowing that we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, we can rest in the fact that true life comes from Jesus. To get back to the story of Robert Harkness after he had the unsettling conversation with the young Canadian convert, Harkness wondered how he could help other Christians have peace that God finished what he had started. So he wrote to a London hymn writer, a friend of Charles Spurgeon named Ada, Ada Habershon, and, and he told her, we need new songs that would encourage definite assurance of success in the Christian life. And because of that letter, Ada wrote a song that she then called, When I Fear My Faith Will Fail. And Harkness wrote the music that would accompany it, accompany it. And today, you know that song is He Will Hold Me Fast. So if you're able, let's stand and sing together to the God who holds us fast. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.